Virtual reality is a new platform for software engineers to work with. Best practices for VR development have not become widespread throughout the developer community. But if you're developing VR software, you need to know how to avoid making the user sick. It's actually quite easy to make the user sick. And understanding how to avoid making the user sick requires understanding the hardware limitations. Andrea Gaita is a software engineer at GitHub. And on today's episode of Software Engineering Daily, Andrea takes us through the developer experience of building for a VR platform. She also gives some analysis and predictions about consumer virtual reality. For anyone who is looking to uh, introduce themselves to virtual reality development, this episode is for you. If you are listening to Software Engineering Daily right now on an internet browser, the practical dev is where you want to go to listen. Uh, practical dev has teamed up with us to give us a better browser experience. You can listen to our content and read our content about software on dev.to slash se daily. That's a dev.to slash se daily. Andrea Gaita is a software engineer at GitHub, and she spends most of her time focused on cross-platform development and some of her time on virtual reality. Andrea, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, it's great to have you. So let's start by talking about VR. If I'm a software engineer who wants to get started developing on VR today, what do I need to do? Well, you're going to have to have a Windows machine for one which is if you're doing gaming, you probably have one already and it's probably good enough. That's step one. And then you need a headset. And that depends on your wallet <laughs> these days. You can go cheap with quotes, air quotes, <laughs> on, on a Samsung Gear VR, especially if you already have a uh, Android phone, a Samsung Edge. If you have one of those or S6 or S7, then you can totally pick up a Samsung Gear VR, which gives you a really nice experience. Not the full, full VR thing, but a really, really good experience for 200 bucks or something like that, which is, you know, you can totally experiment and have fun with it. And if being a software engineer, you probably want to develop for it. And because it's an Android platform, it's actually familiar and easier to develop for it than other platforms. So you got all of it mostly set. You already know the platform and there's tools and knowledge is out there. You why do I go? Yep. Oh, oh, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, why do I need a Windows machine? Well, unfortunately, because Oculus, which is the one powering the software behind the Samsung Gear VR and the Oculus, have decided that they don't support the Mac. Is so there any particular reason for that? or Because Apple is annoying with their OpenGL metal graphics implementations. They don't support OpenGL properly, and then now they've switched to metal, which is a new completely different API. And even though the hardware is good, if they can't get the APIs, the graphics APIs to, to behave the way they need to behave for VR, then it's really hard to get it performant. And Oculus has decided that they don't want to have the trouble until whatever Apple decides to do. So basically, they just dropped it and said, it was like, we're Windows only and that's it. Wow. Okay. So you say that when you're developing for VR, you need to know your hardware so is it more important to understand the hardware limitations of my VR headset and my smartphone 
if I'm developing VR apps, in contrast to how important it is to know the hardware limitations of my iPhone, if I'm building a mobile app, because like certainly it's important to know the hardware limitations of my iPhone if I'm building a mobile app, but perhaps even more important to know that in the context of VR. Yeah, yeah. So the problem is that if you screw up your mobile app, you're not going to make people sick and vomit. And if you do that on VR, you might make people sick and so it's a little more a little more binary. It's harder. It's not an easy it's very easy to do things wrong. And making it right is possible, but harder. So the barrier for performance development in games in general is hard, and for VR is extra hard. Because in games, you know, you want to keep that frame rate smooth and nice so, you know, it doesn't jump or stall or whatever. But if it does, it's fine. You wait a bit and it'll get back to normal. But if you do that on VR, it's going to make people sick. Like It's instant and immediate. Even if you're not prone to motion sickness or anything, anything that breaks the smoothness, the brain and the eyes will just go completely nuts and, and you're going to feel bad. Do VR developers, do they have access to different configurations based on user hardware? Like, can I do something where, I don't know, I, I can adjust to older, worse hardware by having changing some config file, or is that just impossible? It's different. So the Oculus runtime and the Valve VR runtime and uh, all of these runtimes already actually do this by measuring the latency of the information f coming from the headset and to the eyes and back. So the, the time it takes from things to sensor information to come from the headset, go to the computer, or get calculated, and then uh, photons get thrown into the headset. They already measure and calculate latencies and adjust for any problems that the hardware might be having in terms of slowness so that they interpolate frames and do very fancy stuff that makes it so you minimize all of these things. You can certainly, the problem is even if you go, okay, this is a older hardware, I'm going to, you know, lower the frame rate so it's smooth and doesn't jump. Anything below 60 frames per second is going to be noticeably mm. slow. You can notice it's no longer smooth and you're, it's going to be jumping around in your eyes. It's, it's very odd. It's not something that you can see when you usually see low frame rates in games. You don't usually see, you might you see them, but I mean, it doesn't really kill you basically, but in VR it does. So even though if this is why they're not supporting the Mac, this is why they recommend a certain graphics card and they will complain at you if you don't have that graphics card, because it's, I mean, there's not that much you can do if the hardware that you have or your users have, whoever is playing your game, if the hardware doesn't have the power to power the, the thing at a certain frame rate, it's going to be hard. Right. Got it. What you can do is maybe do different types of games that don't rely on the most advanced graphics. Ah. And you can, you know, make it better that way. Ah, okay. Interesting. Okay. Well, so I want to talk more about kind of the hardware components of VR headset. So I saw a talk where you explained the hardware setup of an Oculus developer kit, for example. And as I understand, you can correct me what I'm wrong about, is that it, you have your smartphone that plugs into HDMI connectors on this headset, and then the headset itself is basically a bunch of sensors. So what else is there? What am I missing? 
Okay, so there's two types of headsets. There's the headsets for mobile and there's headsets for PC, basically. The headsets for mobile have a little adapter, like a dock, and you just plug the phone in and the phone automatically detects it's docked to a headset and launches the virtual home station. So when you put the headset on, it detects there's a little sensor in there next to the lenses that detects that your face is in there and, and tells the phone, hey, launch, and then you're in full full VR mode. Mobile headsets only have three types of sensor location. So they only track head rotation and that's it. You can't lean forward or back and have a sense of depth on head because they're using the mob- the phone sensors to do this, right? So there's only just rotational tracking and the usual, the same sensors, like the phone is doing all the work. So you can't move in the space without external accessories like a gamepad or something else. But you can rotate 360. So you can, there's games that take advantage of this. You know, you can sit on a little chair that rotates and you can just see everything and play around. These headsets usually have touchpads in the headset itself. So you can interact with the world just by touching your head, which is usually in the headset. So one of the sides of the head is going to have a little touchpad and you can touch it. Is that a functional user experience? It's surprisingly fun. I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're banging your head for two hours with your fingers doing things, then, you know, at some point it gets a bit tiring. You mm. get tired of raising your arm or just bumping your head. Reasonable uh, proof of concept. Yeah, it works. It works surprisingly well. I've spent mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of hours playing Darknet on the Samsung Gear VR, <laughs> which is a game that is all about uh, little touchpad interactions and 360 view. And it works, right? There's other companies that actually do accessories where you can have like a a wrist thing that in VR will extend the UI. It tracks your hand and you can tap your wrist and you can see in VR the UI open. So instead of doing this on your head, you can interact with, with your arms, with your hands, and you can attach cameras to the headset so you can track your hands. So you can actually. Yeah. So what what are the best hand or I guess haptic? experiences i mean you, you've talked about all these different ones where like you have some kind of field in front of you and you can kind of like move your hands just in that field that detects it and you've got all these different controller types what are the ones that you prefer so i haven't tried them all i am still wanting to have some time to try at leap motion which does all of these virtual hand tracking fields which have really really good cool concepts hand tracking is hard but i think it's going to be important it's going to be fun because after like three hours of tapping my head, I mean, yeah, I want to tap my wrist. <laughs> so that's like having something in your hands is really good. Uh-huh. Your hands are usually free, especially in mobile environments. And so Leap Motion is doing interesting things that I really want to check out their stuff. But there's also for the full headsets where you actually have full six degrees of motion tracking. So you can move around in a space. The space is tracked and you are tracked in that space. Then the controllers actually end up serving a different function, which is as extensions of your body as tools in the world. So like there's nothing better than playing Fruit Ninja. (laughs) On the Valve, the HTC Vive VR experience where you're slicing uh, fruit in the air, right? Okay. With a controller in a hand because the controller turns into a sword. Sure, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, right? 
So, so rather than, I mean, this is all really interesting. I don't want to devolve into a, uh, into like a consumer ga- <laughs> consumer electronics gadget show. I do want to talk more about the like software developer experience. So most of the software development we do is on just a single screen. But for VR, you're actually developing for a situation where you have these two cameras that render behind each eye or render for each eye. So does the developer's experience change when developing for a platform when you have one screen for each eye? Is there anything to keep in mind with this situation? Yeah, so it's kind of complicated. There's multiple levels of problems going on there. One is the graphics themselves when they're being designed. Now you have to take in consideration that you can't just render the front and not the back because nobody's ever going to see the back, which is a common optimization in every game. You only render what you're seeing, right? But now suddenly you can peek around corners and look under tables. So all of these things need to be rendered. So you have to disable all of the optimizations that you usually do, and most engines do for games in general. Those need to go out. And, and the way that you design things suddenly needs to be more real or more... It needs to be aware that you can always look behind under things. And then suddenly that turns into a problem of if you look down, you don't see yourself and it kills the experience. So now how do you do, do you, you know, first person experiences suddenly become is what you want, but they're hard. So in terms of graphics, there's a lot of new problems and it makes the game slower, which is a problem because you really don't want to make them slower. They need to be fast. But also in developing in general, the tools are now coming out where they support seeing the virtual environment as the virtual environment, not as two eyes being rendered, which is usually the, what you see when you're developing. You see like the both cameras. You only see the full effect inside the headset because they're projecting into your eyes. So you see one unified scene. But in the developer tools, when you're developing, you see that weird fisheye, both eye rendered kind of view, which is not actually that valuable because that's not what you're going to see inside the headset. Sure. So now the IDs for game development and real Unity and the major ones are developing new views where you can actually see the rendered coming in from the headset or simulated. So you can actually see it while you're developing because you can't be developing with the headset on. Right. That of course, work. not yet. So what is the debugging workflow like? If I'm developing like typical VR situation, I mean, I can think of the typical programmer situation if I've got a, some problem with a database or you know, yeah. I've got an exception that happens under some kind of circumstance. But when I think about the typical day of a developer working on VR, I have no idea what the type of bug I'll encounter is or what is the workflow like for solving those bugs? Well, the problems that involve the actual headset, which are going to be most of the problems, you're going to have two problems. You're going to have the problems of performance in general, where you're trying to figure out how to get the most performance, but you don't really need the headset for that because it's just a performance problem. And then it's the sensor tracking and reacting to the sensor information 
fast enough that it doesn't kill the person that's playing the mm. game. And that usually you have the headset plugged into the PC while you're developing. So your game view in your editor is actually showing you the sensor information. So, are so these that, this is the accelerometer and the gyroscope and the magnetometer? Yeah, yeah okay. all of the... All so of there's the some system. latency between when those record events and how they convey the events back to the device. Well, there's just general latency of, you know, like physics. But then there's the latency of that data being processed by your game. So you get all of this data, you process oh, it, and now you course. have to respond by changing the scene accordingly to what happened. Right? right, and the processing is what I'm actually writing, so that's yes. what I'm debugging. Exactly. And you have to do this as fast as possible. So you don't want some in squared in squared calculation over the uh, the acceleration. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's just a yeah, disaster. All of these things. And you have to do this fast enough and you update your simulation. So you're basically running a game. A game is a simulation of a game world. And you're running this simulation n frames a second, which you know it's going to have to be at least 60. So you're doing this at least 60 times a second, calculating the updated position of everything in the world according to the sensor information of the headset, which gives you what the player is doing with their head. And also sensor information from the controllers, which move the player in the world in general. And you have to do this at a speed that's fast enough so that the player doesn't get sick. So and that that is the usual problem that you have to solve. And there's a ton of things I think I talked in my talk about acceleration and stopping and, you know, panning the views and all of the stuff that you usually do in games that suddenly in VR don't work that well. So you have to solve all these problems. You have to do it fast enough. And you usually do this in an editor with the headset attached so you can see the data information in, in real time. You don't put your headset on. You should do it. But you're usually debugging with the headset on the side. And then you take it and physically move it around to see what is happening in your code. And you debug. And you development in general, after you know getting everything set up, is... The same problems as everything else. You're reacting to your user input and spitting out something. It's just a lot of input, basically. Some of the hardware platforms to develop on are Oculus Rift, HTC Vive, Oculus Gear VR, and then you've also got like PlayStation VR. There's plenty of other things. How do the development experiences on these different platforms compare? So it's pretty good, actually, because... Uh, it's pretty similar. It is. They're not doing weird things. It's all converging into the same right. kind of things. In general, the game engine that you're using usually gives you an ID, hopefully. And we'll have integration with VR, hopefully. Otherwise, you have to do it all on your own, and that's, that's a pain. And they all have their own libraries to talk to whatever hardware you're running or... You your user's going to be running, and you can totally target, do your game from different hardware. They're not that different. They have, like, similar... It's more of the what the hardware can do, whether it has a full tracking, six degrees of motion, or limited tracking, external cameras, how much sensor data and what type of sensor data. And it's not that dissimilar from developing for Android. Because when you're doing Android, it's like a million different devices that do all kinds of weird stuff. And of you have course. To, you know, it's ah, not that different. Ah, of course. Same code base, many different, uh, many different <laughs> runtimes. If, 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 if this, and that. yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, right, 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 right. Okay. So you mentioned that as a developer, you have to be very cautious 
not to use too much CPU or GPU. So what are the circumstances where I accidentally make an app that is consuming too much CPU or GPU, and, and what are the consequences of that? Well, depends on if you're doing Forgive Your, and let's assume you're doing that, and it's the same problems as an Android app. If you forget to sleep when you should sleep, and if you're, if you're pumping, like if you're drawing too much, and it's the exact same problems. There's pretty much no difference between doing a game for Android and doing a VR game for Android. Mm. The problem is that if you overheat the device, it will shut down, it will stop, it will stall, again, make people sick. And it's actually running, I mean, there's a little fan in the headset to make things cooler, but still, it's always a problem of if you overheat the phone, you're done, right? So in the case of the mobile devices, it's kind of the same precautions mm. that you have to have in general for Android development, with okay. just more precautions because high graphics intensive. The problem is you're rendering twice, so it's automatically twice as much work that you do there as opposed mm. to a normal game. So yeah. it's all kind of duplicated. For the Vive and the Oculus, it's less of a problem. Obviously, the thing is not going to overheat. So it's, in general, always a problem of if you do too much, if you're driving the CPU or GPU too hard, you can totally overheat the GPU. But mostly, it's a question of performance. Again, if the frame rate goes down, it's going to hurt the experience for the people looking at it, basically. It's going to like slow down. And as soon as it slows down, you're going to feel ill. So you kind of don't want to do that, right? But it's, you know, more lenient. There's way more performance in a PC than there is in an Android device. Talk more about Unity, because Unity is the way that we're actually programming much of this. And I know nothing about the Unity programming language. What are some of the features of Unity, or how, how does Unity even work? So Unity is a full ID. Oh, it's an IDE. It's not a programming totally. language. Totally. It actually okay. uses C-sharp. There's two, two languages that it can use with it. It provides... So most game engines or game frameworks that you use give you a scripting language. So you're not actually building the game in the same language that the runtime is, is done, which is usually C++ for most runtimes. But you don't really want to make a game with C++. So you have a scripting environment where you can script. And like scripting languages, there are multiple choices. There's Lua, there's C-sharp, there's Python, there's all kinds of, there's Haskell and Scheme. Uncharted, most of the Uncharted games were built on a Scheme variant that they built. What do you use the script? So you use some, I guess you use C-sharp for rendering and then you use some scripting language for the interaction between rendered objects or? C-sharp is the scripting language. So most of the, oh, the engine... Okay is built on C++ and C-sharp. There's a lot of C-sharp in there too. But you're using C-sharp as the scripting language for doing everything in your game. You can also use a variant of JavaScript. So it supports both. It compiles down to the same thing, but it's just a question of language preference, whether you like a JavaScript type of language or C-sharp. And so you're in this IDE, right? Unity is a full editor. You have a game view where Everything that is currently in your scene is, is being rendered. So you can, you know, can drag and drop cubes and characters and whatever and attach components to them, which are C-sharp scripts that act on the objects and make them move around. You have cameras, you have physics objects, and you have meshes and render objects and all, all of this stuff together in a scene. And then you can run your game inside the editor and you will run it. So you can preview at any time any yeah. the state of the game and, and test and do stuff. 
So Unity can be built once and deploy. Well, I guess I guess it's is it the language that you would say like Unity is being built once and deployed anywhere or the the so the your game your right? game so, okay yeah so Unity uses Mono under the covers as uh, to power the C sharp. Okay, and tell mono. us what Mono is. Oh, yeah. Great. So yeah, <laughs> so Mono is a cross-platform implementation of .NET. So it's basically C sharp. .NET, the whole the whole thing for every single OS architecture that you can possibly think of. Unity currently ships for twenty seven platforms, not the editor itself. The editor itself runs on Windows, Mac, and Linux. But you can build games for twenty seven platforms from whatever OS you're currently using. Maybe not OS. Yeah. It sounds shockingly better than mobile app development. Yes. Yes, you can actually do mobile app development from Unity because there's no difference. A game is an app. It's just a question ah. of what your UI does. If you want to do a little UI that looks like an app and script your app in Unity and build it for mobile, just go right ahead. You can ship it anywhere and it will be a native app. Why don't more people do that? This is a good question <laughs> because people separate apps and games. Huh. Yeah, because I mean, I've I've only done like 200 shows about React Native and all the hype around that. And so why aren't we talking about Unity on everything? So there, there's advantages and disadvantages, obviously. The entire UI is OpenGL on the mobile platforms. So it's basically, it's whatever you want it to be. Making a uh, UI that looks native on a platform either requires a lot of work uh, or requires the native UI toolkits. But there's always asset store packages for Unity that have like material UI. So you could use material UI and do a Unity game app that looks native on, on Android, right? I mean, when you develop natively, as opposed to doing web apps for mobile or other stuff like that, when you develop natively for mobile, you're getting the feel and the behaviors, right, of the platform. You get all of this stuff for granted, basically. Integration with like services and the UI and all of this stuff is given to you. If you want to do cross-platform development for mobile and you want to do it natively, then the UI becomes a bit more of an issue because then you have the same problems with doing Windows Mac apps. Mm. Are you going native with the UI or are you picking a cross-platform UI that looks weird everywhere? But it works. There's some people that do this, like uh, universities that develop like simulation architecture. People develop architecture simulations and visualizations in Unity because it's it's a full graphical interface. Like you can do 3D UIs very easily, 2D and 3D UIs, and you can ship it. It doesn't have to be a game, right? Yeah. So as we're talking about these different cross-platform stuff, you have a a lot of interest in cross-platform technologies. You're giving a talk at OSCON upcoming conference in Austin about cross-platform technologies. Why do you focus so much on cross-platform? Why has this been an area of interest to you? Well, it really started when I started working on Mono back in 2006. And I call myself, I'm a bridge builder. I make things work in places where they're not supposed to work. This is what I do, which I find 
the challengers are interesting because most of the time when you're trying to do this stuff and you Google for problems, the only thing that comes up is your own questions or your own code because <laughs> usually nobody has, everybody goes like, I'm not doing this. I'm just going to write my own or do something else. But it's- Which it's is tragic. Of, yes, but it's, it's not an easy problem. I mean, it's uh, doing cross-platform work, especially tools and libraries that other people build upon. This is what I do. I do developer tools. I'm playing around with VR and Unity and everything, but in reality, what I was when I was working at Unity, what I was doing was working on the runtime and the scripting engine, which was cross-platform, right? I do developer tools because I suck at doing UIs. That's pretty much it. I really don't like front-end development. I dislike it immensely. I like being close to the OS and figuring out ways that people can use the OS without going through the pain that I have to make that thing work, basically. Okay. How, how does VR fit into that framework of what you like about being close to the OS and these other things? It's completely different and separate. VR oh. comes from, yeah, VR comes from, first of all, it's like completely new hardware, different. So it's interesting. I like poking at things and making other things work on places where they shouldn't. So it's kind of <laughs> similar there. I mean, I've tried running Oculus off of a Raspberry Pi. So you could put it in your phone and have the VR experience. Yeah, how did that go? Any wires? Well, not very well. <laughs> <laughs> but it did go. It did go. It did go. The problem, it, it ran. The problem was the the drivers, the graphics drivers were just not good enough. Did you get it, sick? No, it didn't. It didn't. It was so slow. It, it, was, not, it was not unusable. It was very bad. It was but a wallpaper. Yeah, but it was fun because it, it got me playing around with cross-compiling for the, the Raspberry Pi and playing around graphics APIs cross-platform. That was fun. But VR in itself is more of like the childhood kind of sci-fi thing, like Diamond Age where uh, and Snow Crash and, and mostly Diamond Age, where there's this whole concept of a society growing up being taught in VR via virtual theater, where people put on motion capture suits and go into virtual theaters and interact or do all of this stuff, right? And is that concept of virtual theater always really, really like, I want to do this. It, this, is, this sounds fun. Totally. Right? And now it's possible. Like now you can totally do that. Let's talk more about that, like the bright future of VR. I mean, we hear a lot about VR classrooms or VR games, obviously, then the teleconferencing. I was at F8 this year and saw some presentations around that. I still feel like we're at this point where like, we're kind of like grasping vaguely at what might come, but we haven't really figured out what is going to come. What's your vision on that? So the vision is basically that we are the generation of people that are building the tools for the next generation to build the content. And that's the thing where we want it to happen, but we might be a bit too limited in our current environment to imagine all of the things that we can do with it. Mm. And people that grow up with the tools already available will have completely different ideas of how to actually produce content and what you can do with them, right? Which kind of makes me sad a bit because eh, I'm not sure, like, am I going to live to see that? I don't know. But, you know, 
I have ideas of, of what you can do with, with VR. I mean, the whole classroom stuff is amazing. There's a lot of different ideas, but there's, I mean, imagine people that are disabled, they can't go and see things live. We've already have, we, a lot of museums have those virtual tours where you can see the museum. It's not the same thing. Now people can actually experience those. And inside VR, things get very, very, very real. Yeah. They feel very real, right? Yeah. So beyond the gimmicks and the games that people can make that are, ooh, this is cool. Is it, does the world need this? It's fun. I don't know. But there's other things that the world could definitely, like our lives could be better. Well, so, so it sounds like what you're saying is, the things we're building today, whether they are frivolous or whether they are useful, what you're really thinking about is, are we building the right abstractions and the right APIs to enable the people who are going to understand this stuff a lot better in the future from a, from a big vision perspective? Yeah. Yeah. What worries me is that and getting the tools to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, for, for instance, one of the things that worried me when Oculus announced the consumer version with the pricing is that it's so expensive, which levels everything else to that, like everybody else is pricing the headsets at that level because that's the first guy to announce is going to be the one that makes the price for everything. And a headset that has that price is not something that can go into the hands well, of it's, it's the Well, it's the Tesla Roadster or the first iPhone, yes. right? Yes, like- exactly. And the prices are going to go down. Hopefully, it will happen. But you can't have content producers without producing content if the tools are not in the hands of people, right? Mm-hmm. And the content that you're going to have is dependent on the size of your audience. So if the audience is small, it's going to be different from a large audience, right? And experimentation and, and like different types of experience will only happen if the audience is large enough that small companies and people with different ideas can actually make a living off of making these experiences. Because otherwise, the content producer is not going to be having a large enough audience to sustain them. Yep. Right? So, which, yeah, so this limits a bit the amount of content that we can have right now, right? This worries me because it delays, it delays all of these, what can we do with this stuff, right? Let's talk about risks. You've mentioned the risk of people getting sick with VR, obviously. What about addiction risks? Do you think about that at all? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem. Going to be a problem or is a problem? Well, it's not enough people's hands to actually be... Sure. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm sure there's people who are addicted to Elite Dangerous, I'm sure, in VR. I'm sure people are going to be... They already are in, in some... Like, but there's maybe one, two... It's too expensive and too complicated and all of these things for this to be widespread, right? Right. But there's going to be addiction because... Which is going to be the same thing as addiction in a normal game. Whoever wants to be addicted to playing World of Warcraft is going to be addicted to playing in VR. What they're going to do is ruin their eyes because they're going to be staring at a screen. I don't know. Entirely. Yeah, for hours at an end. So if if the people wear already, a lot of people wear glasses now, it's going to be worse. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I was at... (laughs) A quick anecdote. I was at I was at Strata conference recently, and I tried out VR. And they had the demo booth that they had set up was like you you're in VR, 
and you're talking to some guy who's kind of like a an NVR presenter person. So he's like somebody that works for Gear VR or Oculus or whatever. And he was in a remote location. I was communicating with him in the VR world. So, you know, you know, he's like, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, hey, and I'm walking around in this room and I'm experiencing this different stuff. And I start, you know, striking up a conversation with him. Like, so this is what you do all day. This is you spend your day in VR, giving people tours of VR. And he's like, yeah, that's what I do. And I was like, so do you worry about addiction at all? And I'm like asking him this in VR. And he's like, well, that's an odd question to get from a <laughs> VR tourist. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm just curious just shopping around and and he's like yeah you know i'm not really worried about it you know i'm i'm really looking forward to going to sleep wearing my vr headset and waking up with it and i was like that so <laughs> so like words of a words of a true addict <laughs> well i've i have uh, watched the movie in vr because netflix exists in there i've played vr games on an airplane and it's very easy to forget that the VR is tracking your head location until you play it on an airplane, which is turning. And then very slowly. Oh, all the my time. gosh. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Well, talking, okay, talking more in practical terms about the sickness stuff, like what, like what degrees of sickness are we talking with, you know, with actual, like if you mess up and you create a bad experience, are, do people get like traumatized or is it just like short-term sickness? It's similar to motion sickness. It can make you woozy for a few minutes. It can make you vomit depending on like how bad it is and how susceptible you are to it. Have you vomited it, from it? No, I am not very susceptible, but I have had, it's very sudden. Even like I can deal uh. with, uh, it, I can deal with a lot of uh, motion, you know, roller coasters, and I'm, I'm usually not susceptible to it. And you yeah. can, you, and you're, you get better at it as you use it because your brain gets used to kind of the, the weird motion sometimes. But when it happens, it is amazingly sudden, and you feel dizzy, like a demo where I move sideways and it just swoops me over the side in a, a speed that's way too fast and sudden what about seizures have people had seizures no it doesn't give you seizures unless you're just strobing (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) doing strobe lights at it it usually don't give you seizures it's mostly like dizziness and like feeling woozy feeling very sick to your stomach for a half an hour up to half an hour if something happened it's not a comfortable thing. And if you have mm. it once and you, if it's like one of your first times that you're doing VR and if you have this, it's going to put you off VR Ugh. very quickly. Yeah. Well, and so you've talked about how to avoid these things. And one, a couple things to keep in mind are you said frame rate and device rate. So define those terms, frame rate and device rate, and how to use those as benchmarks to avoid making people sick. Oh, I can't remember anymore what the device rate on was in the talk. But in general, like the benchmarks are that uh, 60 frames per second is the minimum. Less than that, it's going to be bad. Smoothness. I mean... What is frame rate versus device rate? I think at the time, I can't remember anymore. What no, no, like the, what is the definition of device rate? Uh, I can't remember. This oh, you literally can't. Oh, okay, I, was, yeah, I cannot uh, sorry. remember what I meant by device rate on the talk. <laughs> but I'm I'm almost certain it was related to... The smoothness of the frame rate, not the frame rate at a particular second. Like now I have 60. I'm almost certain it was this. Now I have 60 and now I have 70 and now I have 65. All of these are above 60 and they're fine. But the fact that it's jumping around 
60-100-60-100 oh. is also bad. Smoothness is important. So like a de- high frame rate. A, a device rate, it, maybe it's the measure of how fast the delta of the frame rates can change? Yes, how little it variates, basically. Right. It's Be- better to have small variations, even if you have a lower frame rate, than have higher frame rates, but a lot of variation between the frame rates. Because your brain is going to pick that up, even Got if you can't it. see it, right? So you really want to make sure that things are stable. Mm. It's all about being stable in the mm. end. If you have to go at 60, even though you think you can do 90 for uh, 30 seconds, but you don't, you can't maintain those 90s and you're always going around between 60 and 90, it's better to just do 60 and be mm. stable about it. And 60 is the bare minimum. Most platforms are pointing at 90. Some are trying 120. Brain and the eyes are very good at picking this stuff up. Yes, yes, they are. So this talk that we've referred to throughout this discussion is a talk that you gave up in the show notes. It's called, I think, Best Practices for VR. What are the best practices for VR that we have not discussed? Uh, let's see. We talked about the frame rates. Latency is important. Even we, we skimmed that a bit. It's basically the time that it takes the sensor information to go f- to your computer and then back and photons to be thrown at your eyes those are like 60 milliseconds is the highest you should be at that any lower and the world starts to not be at the place where you expect it to be Mm. the world is not reacting fast enough for the input that you're giving it basically so you're moving your head but the sensor information being calculated and then converted into what appears in the world is not fast enough. So you sense the latency, you sense the delay between what you do and what you see. Mm -hmm. That can also, it's separate from frame rate. Frame rate can be very nice, but if if you can't do this processing fast enough, then again, your brain is going to pick it up. You're going to feel like that there's a delay in the world, that there's, it's not reacting like your body would. This is all the problem, right? As soon as you're in VR, you forget that you're in VR. Your brain goes like, oh, this is my body now. This is where I am. And then if you move, do a motion, like if you're doing hand tracking or head tracking, if you move your head and what happens is not fast enough, it's going to break. It's going to break the thing. It might not make you sick, but it's going to break the immersion. It's going to break the experience. So let's begin to close off. What's going to happen in VR in the next one to three years? So, yes, what's going to happen in VR? This is an interesting question. There's going to be at least three consumer versions of VR headsets that are going to be available at the end of this year. And for people considering getting any of these, the controllers are the most important thing in a VR experience. Because at the end is what you do with your hands, not what you do with your head. Basically, your hands are you in the world. And when there's no controllers that can match what you're doing with your hands, if you just have an Xbox controller or a gamepad or whatever, it's not going to be the full experience. So headset with controllers is going to be here at the end of the year. This is like version one. And now they're going to be iterating on it. And they're going to figure out that there's a lot of stuff to be done with the hardware, like what do I do with my glasses? I need to wear glasses. Maybe people with nearsighted really, really need to wear glasses. We, we have to fix this. Some headsets support have more than or less enough space for glasses, not that much. Mm. What are you going to do about this? And then like uh, sound, suddenly 
3D sound is really, really important when you're mm. trying to make a VR experience. So headphones that are different, that might actually not in, inside your ears, but just projecting sound into your ears to simulate like Aureole 3D sound. This is going to be a thing. And AR. We're still not there with AR. And I mm. really want to see what HoloLens does. HoloLens is, again, another platform that is amazing and way too expensive. And it's a bit in, in its infancy right now. In three years, I'm going to be more excited about AR than VR. I hope because... Mag- Magic Leap has something by then. Oh, yes. Uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It's I don't know. It's all... I, I'm very skeptical of, uh, of the... Uh, Give me hardware and we can talk. You know, like videos of whales coming so, out of the So do you, do you think it's like a piece of glass and then like what they don't show you is it's plugged into like an entire data center? Maybe. Yes, <laughs> yes maybe. It's the same problem with HoloLens. HoloLens is an amazing experience that has a field of view that's like a, a cube in front of your eyes. Yeah. Ridiculously limited field of view. Amazing, amazing experience in that ridiculously limited field of view, right? So... Now imagine walking around. It's the Google Glass thing all over again. But I really want to walk around in the street and have labels. But I, so I things. thought that the Google Glass thing was basically people. It was too early in terms of cultural adoption. It wasn't a technological problem. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, there were there were concerns about battery life and whatnot, but that was not why it didn't take off. It was because people didn't want this thing. They were like. Yes. This is a sign of the divide between the haves and the have-nots. Yes, and Google didn't help with making it all you know we're special and like all of the people that have this is special and i don't know what what they could do I, what, what are you supposed to do um, there's there's no way like here's a piece of technology apologize for it no make it different it's not about the where it's about the content creator this is not about who's wearing the device but who's creating content for it if hmm. there's enough content that's interesting people will wear the device if you make architectural visualization apps for architects they will wear it because mm. they've never before in the history of the world been able to visualize a plan before they actually build it in 3D real. So right. like, if you, there's a lot of things that you can do with VR and AR that are not possible right now. And a lot of industries that could take advantage of it, like industrial design and automation, a surgery, lot of things, all of, yes, like so many things. And it's about the content and about what you do with it. It's not about, who has the money to buy a Google Glass so they can show off how many emails <laughs> they can see a day? On the other hand, like the first person to hit the market is rarely, if ever, the one that actually makes it like a success. Before any popular app or framework or tool or thing, there was like 10 others that tried and failed exactly mm-hmm. the same thing because people weren't ready. Oculus is probably not going to be the one that succeeds in all of this. HTC Vive might beat them. I'm pretty sure they're beating them already, so it's not going to be hard because Oculus has a vision of you sitting in front of the PC playing games with a controller and a VR. And Vive has a vision of you being in a room and walking around. And people want to walk around in VR. Mm. And as soon as you tell them to sit down, they won't. So it's different visions. So Vive will likely beat Oculus at the game at the end, even though Oculus was the one that made it happen. And there's a lot of value in that, right? But Microsoft's taking a different position in terms of the HoloLens. They're making it professional. 
and technical and you know expensive but only but it's different it's not it's not a gimmick for showing off how cool you are it's a tool for people and they heavily when they show it off they always show it off as a tool for yeah. building things yes right? so that is a good approach so they might be the ones that actually make this happen i hope they do uh, otherwise mm -hmm. i mean it's going to be another one the technology is way more complicated than traditional vr so it's going to be taking longer but um, hololens is the one that feels like it's totally from the future like from yes. from from all these i'm like okay google cardboard oculus whatever and then i just look at hololens like this thing is out of the future yes yes hololens is different but to be fair to be fair if you try to vibe with a really good content again it's ah. all about what do you see like it's there's nothing quite like slicing fruit ninja fruits <laughs> okay. flying in front of you with a sword. There's really something in someone handing you a controller. You already have the headset on. Someone hands you the controller and the controller is a sword in the game world. And you reach out and grab it in the game world and you grab it in the physical world because that's how good they're tracking things. You can actually interact with things in the game world that are in the physical world. And that they match, like you can just, someone throws a controller at you when you have your headset on and you reach out and grab it and you grab it. Like, that's amazing. That feels so good. It feels real. So, you know, if you have the proper controller and environment and VR headset, it's pretty darn good. Very cool. Okay, well, let's close off with Fruit Ninja. That's a that's a great place to end the conversation. I think I'm going to go take a walk outside <laughs> and, <see what> <laughs> and enjoy reality. <laughs> um, great talking to you, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. 